Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. As our more regular listeners know, my longtime co-host, Sefi Kogan, has left us to further his education. So you'll be hearing a few guest hosts joining me at the mic in the months to come, some from as far as Jerusalem. With me this week is my colleague, Avi Mayer, American Jewish Committee's Jerusalem-based Managing Director of Public Affairs and Senior Spokesperson. Avi, welcome to our virtual studio. Thank you so much, Manya. It's a pleasure to be here. This week marks one year since the announcement of the Abraham Accords the historic normalization agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, which were soon followed by normalization agreements with Morocco and Sudan. In one fell swoop, the number of Arab countries with which Israel has formal relations tripled from two, Egypt and Jordan, to six. With us to discuss this important anniversary and Israel's burgeoning ties in the region is Ambassador Eitan Naeh, head of mission at the Israeli embassy in Abu Dhabi, which was formally dedicated just six weeks ago. Ambassador Na'eh, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. We're now celebrating one year since the announcement of the Abraham Accords. Can you tell us a little bit about what the past year has been like? What have the relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and the other Arab countries that subsequently joined the Accords, what have those looked like over the past year? Well, obviously, uh, the beginning was a huge enthusiasm. The relationships that were kind of kept in the dark for many years have come to the open. We opened the embassy or started operations here when I arrived at the end of January. We've seen here really hundreds of thousands of Israelis. So the enthusiasm on the people-to-people level was very high. It seems that you know the Israelis were very happy to, at last, have relationships with an Arab country that is really normalized relationships where everything is open, everybody can come, business, people-to-people contacts, relationship between the elite, the press, state institutions, government officials, the youth, obviously us diplomats and everybody else. So I think that phase is more or less over. I mean, we kind of get used to that. And what we started to do once we started the working here as an embassy is, first of all, to set ourselves up with COVID and with the uh, political situation in Israel. Obviously, it took time. We started to map out and create relationships with our Emirati counterparts. And basically, ever since, we are familiarizing ourselves with the United Arab Emirates and its various institutions and widening the relationships by creating the legal framework for relationships, taking care of official visits to create these kind of personal relationships. We had the foreign minister here for the first time. He officially opened the embassy in Abu Dhabi, the consulate general in, in, in Dubai. So that's what we actually been doing every day, including today, negotiating agreements, making sure that we sign soon. We have a lot of ministerial visits coming in the next couple of months. The expo is just around the corner. We will open the Israeli pavilion on the 7th of October. So uh, all kind of milestones in the relationships. You mentioned the hundreds of thousands of Israelis who have thus far visited the UAE. And I have to admit that I was amongst the first 
tens of thousands of Israelis who came around Hanukkah time. And I was really struck by the warmth of the Emirati people, the openness to Israelis. I walked around with my kippah. I spoke Hebrew openly. No one batted an eyelid. It was really a very warm and welcoming feeling. But I'm not Israel's top diplomat in the UAE. That would be you. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be Israel's leading diplomat in the country? What have your interactions been like? How have you been received? What does that look like on a daily basis? I came here with no expectations. I didn't know what to expect. And as soon as I stepped out of the house and started to meet people, be it in cafes, the first meetings were in cafes. I met Mirati colleagues. And obviously I came with the security details so people quickly realized that this is the new Israeli ambassador or charge d'affaires, as I'm still officially called. People can react very warmly. That's what kind of the first hint for me that uh, this is going the right way. I remember my first meeting out at a cafe with an Emirati diplomat. And people ordered cakes to a table just to show how happy they are that, you know, they are sitting together with an Israeli diplomat, that things are going the way they are. So there was certainly here in Abu Dhabi and in, uh, in Dubai, in the beginning we were just there, real, you know, kind of a warm feeling towards our arrival and a lot of curiosity. People used to stop Israelis in the street just to listen to Hebrew or to talk Hebrew. I've learned of many people who study Hebrew, started actually to study Hebrew before the Abrahamic Accords were signed. People really anxious to go to Israel, to visit Israel. So all in all, it's a very, very positive feeling. And I've been around in the region a bit, in Turkey, Azerbaijan. It's a very nice feeling to be warmly welcomed, I can tell you that. I can only imagine. And we'll talk about some of your other experiences in just a moment. But I want to think back to May, the escalation between Hamas and Israel, that of course drew casualties on both sides. I remember that at the time, there were those who said that this was going to be the first true test of Israel's new relations with the UAE and Bahrain, and then, of course, with Morocco and Sudan. And then a few weeks later, when a new government was sworn in, they said, ah, this will be the true test of relations between Israel and these Arab countries. And we see that the relations have remained quite stable and continue to grow. What do you make of that? I think that uh, both countries made a strategic decision. The Emirati leadership took a very bold decision. They know what they did it. And I think that they stuck to it. I think we live in this environment. These things may happen. Nobody likes it. Nobody likes to see it. But I think that all in all, the Emiratis for the first time had the chance to talk directly with Israel. They had Jerusalem's ear. I remember going into a Salon talk, talking to young Emiratis during the campaign in Gaza. And obviously I was asked questions there. The TV was open on one of the channels that showed in a loop photos from videos from Gaza. I was asked questions, I answered. And people honestly told me, you know, it's the first time we have a chance to hear the other side, how things look like from the other side. And, you know, I've been during the Protective Edge campaign in London. I can't tell you that whatever I said then was so warmly received there, or there was a readiness to hear outside of the story. So for me, it was kind of, uh, you know, a moment where I pinched myself and, you know, said to myself, I'm sitting here in the middle of a campaign an exchange of fire, rockets are falling in Israel, Israel is bombing Hamas targets in Gaza. And I'm sitting here in an Arab salon and ask questions, give answers. Pretty amazing, in my opinion. And I think that these relations will hold. I mean, I think they are stable. I think that the interests behind them are solid. And the decision was taken. Quite right. 
Now, we at AJC have been engaged in bringing Israel and the Arab world closer together for decades. We have sent delegations to the Gulf region, to North Africa and elsewhere in an effort to bring Israeli and Arab leaders and the countries and societies closer together. Could you talk a little bit about the role of American Jewish organizations in keeping the momentum of this agreement alive, and particularly the role that AJC has played in bringing those relations even closer? Well, thank you for asking these questions. I think it's an important question. First of all, let me tell you this. A lot of the young generation in Emiratis are studying in the U.S. and the U.K., and meeting there in various universities, uh, fellow Jewish students have helped normalize the whole uh, perception of Jews, of what Israel, obviously they heard a lot about Israel from their uh, fellow Jewish students. So it wasn't new to them. It wasn't so weird for them. What was new, of course, was the actual you know, contacts with Israelis, but here in the UAE or in Israel. But they met Israelis and certainly Jews abroad. A lot of them, and it's not just Emiratis, also Saudis, are telling me that they have many Jewish friends, uh, which means that they've studied together. So a lot of the issues that I'm talking about with my Emirati friends have been spoken before. They got the answers. They were engaged in conversations with Jews before. I think the American involvement, certainly in the peace process, and then the Abrahamic Accord was crucial for its success. It will continue to be crucial for its success, even though today we are talking directly with the Emiratis. We don't have to go to Washington or to London or to Rome to meet Emiratis or Bahrainis, Moroccans, etc. But still, the involvement, the continued involvement, the continued engagement of America in the peace process in the Middle East is important. I think that the Jewish community and Friends of Israel have a role to play in making sure that this momentum will continue, that the engagements will, will continue. I think that bringing delegations here or opening the office here is extremely important. It will be headed by a veteran diplomat and a good friend of mine, Mark Sievers. And I think that should, you know, if I have a say in it, my two cents advice will be to continue doing exactly what you've done before and to make sure engagements will continue, to find new ways maybe of making sure that this will continue. Again, remembering that today, we don't have to go to the Washington to meet Emiratis. We can do it here. So finding new creative ways of making sure that this will continue, that Emiratis will know that, and Israelis, that, you know, America got their backs. And of course, we're extremely excited about AJC's new office in Abu Dhabi, our first office anywhere in the Arab world. I want to take a moment and think back to your time in Turkey. I remember that when you were appointed ambassador there, it was after several years in which there was no ambassador, Israeli ambassador in the country. And I remember how moving it was to hear Hatikva played in the presidential palace in Ankara and when you met with President Erdogan. Could you talk a little bit about your time there? What was it like to be Israel's top diplomat, top envoy in Turkey at that time? Well, my romance, if you can, if you can call it that, with Turkey started in the 90s when I was a junior diplomat at the embassy. Started in 93 when relations really soared in many ways. And so I was already then involved with many aspects of the relationships. I had many friends, kind of grew up together through the ranks of respected foreign ministries. I kept in touch with them throughout the years and throughout many other postings. So when I came back to Ankara at the end of 2016, I met my friends, my friends from the 90s. They all held the high-level positions in the presidential palace or the prime minister's office, deputy prime minister in parliament, the academia, press, of course, the foreign office. So for me, it was coming back to the same environment and talking with the same people. Sometimes we talk about 
countries have interests, but diplomats representing these interests also have friends. And that obviously made it easier for me to come in, to gain access, and, and to be able to perform my duties to pass on messages. Obviously, there is not much that we could compare the 90s to recent years in the Israel-Turkey relationships. As important as tech is and will continue to be, relations have gone south in past years. Personally, I had a very positive experience in Turkey. I love the people, I love the views, the food, the culture, the rich history. It's what I studied in the university, the history of the Middle East, and a great part of it is the history of the Ottoman Empire. So my memories from Turkey, apart from the uh, last episode, were pretty positive. I still have friends there, still in touch with them. That's wonderful to hear. Your tenure in Turkey, however, came to, to an abrupt stop in 2018. And as you say, the relations between the two countries appear to have gone south in recent years. However, we know that in recent weeks, there have been indications that perhaps things are moving in another direction. We know that President Erdogan called Israeli President Isaac Herzog to congratulate him on his inauguration. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the prospects of a closer relationship between Israel and Turkey, what that might look like going forward. To be honest with you, I, I don't know. There's a lot that the Turks should do in order to mend the relationships. Israel did not initiate, we did not initiate, I did not initiate calling me back to Jerusalem. The Turks have asked me to leave for a while. There are things that Turkey should do, and I think that Turkey knows exactly what it should do in order to mend relationships. And I'm sure that the time will come when these relationships will be mended. As I said, Turkey is a very important country. It's a big country. We have a lot of interests. One thing that I'm happy to see, and we said it throughout the 90s, that side by side with political, diplomatic, and defense relationships, we also have to develop our commercial relationships and sign and, and put those agreements in place. And we insisted at the times to do that. And in fact, that's exactly what remained out of this relationship is commerce. The volume of trade have not dropped drastically, could have went higher than it is. I think that there is a generation in Turkey that doesn't know Israel, hasn't been to Israel, did not exchange business, kind of out of sight, out of mind. I tried to do my best during the time I spent in Turkey to renew trust, to build bridges, to help bring business back together again. But it did not happen the way I hoped it will when I came back to Turkey at the end of 2016. I fully understand. Now, it's said that there's something of an axis that runs from Ankara, which is, of course, the capital of Turkey, through Doha, the capital of Qatar, to Tehran, the capital of Iran, back again. Assuming that axis exists, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on whether it does, how has it responded to this blossoming relationship between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain in particular, Morocco, Sudan? What has that response looked like? I tend to look at relationships and the new relationship we are building with the UAE, of course, with Bahrain and Morocco, as relationships that are standing on the wrong feet. It's not because of other countries that we have good relationships. It's not because of other countries' interests. It's because we, Israel and the UAE, or Israel and Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, have bilateral interests that we want to pursue together. And I think that in this light, we should analyze the relationships. No relationship will withhold and stand only because, you know, you and I are not good friends with another one. You know, the region is what the region is, and the challenges in the region are well known. But the relationship between Israel and the UAE and other countries of the Abrahamic Accords 
are standing and will continue to stand on their own feet and uh, due to the interests that lie behind, the bilateral interests that lie behind. Well, Ambassador Naev, we started this conversation by looking back on the past year. I'd like to end it by looking forward to the year to come and any years thereafter. What do we have to look forward to in the blossoming relationship between Israel and the UAE? What do we have coming down the pike? In the next uh, year and uh, years ahead, what we will see is how normal relationships look like. Leaders meet, summits happen, exchange of visits, tourism. I fully expect that that's my own expectations due to my own experience here, that the UAE will become kind of a winter tourist destination for many Israelis. I think that Israel may become a summer tourist destination for Emiratis. I think that there is a lot of curiosity both in Israel and and here to know more about the cultures, to know about the religions. It's a very tolerant country. Everybody is accepted here. I think that commerce will flourish. We will see more agreements signed. We'll see volume of trade growing. It has already exceeded uh, half a billion dollars in the first six months of, of this year, and that will continue to grow. The UAE is a hub. It's a commercial hub due to the fact that there is a very high synergy between Israel and the UAE, the UAE being one of the most developed Arab countries, a country led by vision, visionary leadership. We'll see a lot of areas of cooperation growing, be it space, be it medicine, energy. I think that we will see investments flowing from both directions. I see it as a meeting place. I sit here often in meetings where on my side are Pakistanis and Saudis and Lebanese. So a truly different experience. Not that I haven't met them in London or in Azerbaijan, where I spent some years, but the atmosphere, the vibe is different. It's positive. When I meet here Saudis or Sudanese or Lebanese, the whole conversation is different. It's really under the, the opposite of shadow, under the light of the Abrahamic Accords and the contagious nature of this accord. And you know, uh, for them, I'm sure, to see what happens between Israel and the UAE and the Israelis and Emiratis is a cause for envy. I truly love to quote the words of the foreign minister, Sheikh Abdallah, who said, that's the idea of these relationships, to build a model that will cause other people in the region to say, why not us? And I think that sums up exactly what we try to do here, to make everybody realize that in this endeavor that we embarked upon, there are no losers, there's only winners. And if that message will go across the Middle East, we will all gain. As we say in this part of the world, Inshallah, Bezrat Hashem, may it be so. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ambassador Naev, for joining us on People of the Pod. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Listeners have gotten used to Sefi and I sharing a short reflection of our own at the end of each episode, but Avi, I just want to know what's on your mind, or even better, what's the talk of the town there in Jerusalem? Well, last Shabbat was a big moment in Israeli sporting history as gymnast Linoy Ashram won Israel's third ever gold medal and the first one by a female athlete. I have to say that I found myself reminded of one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite movies, Airplane, in which a flight attendant is walking down the aisle offering passengers reading material. And one of the passengers asks for something light. She's handed a pamphlet that reads famous Jewish sports legends. So the joke, obviously, is that there aren't very many of them. And Jews are not known for their sporting prowess. 
Of course, we know that there are some, and we can name several of them, the Hank Greenbergs and the Mark Spitzes and the Sandy Koufaxes of the world, and perhaps more recently, Israeli athletes like Omri Caspi, the basketball player. But it's been quite a few years since Israel has been a part of the Olympics. It was really only in 1992 that Israel won its first ever medal after having been a part of the Olympics for about 40 years at that point. And up until this Olympics, Israel had only won, I believe, nine medals in total and added four more during this game, making it obviously the, the most successful games in Israel's history, including two golds and two bronzes. So Israelis were, of course, cheering for all the athletes and, of course, were proud of all the achievements. But there's nothing quite like hearing Hatikva, Israel's national anthem, played twice in the Olympic Stadium to bring joy and great excitement to the hearts of Israelis and Jews around the world. So that's what I've been thinking about. You know, this year's Olympics really did put Israel on the map of Jewish sports legends. Will there be or, or have there been ticker tape parades to welcome back the Israeli Olympians? The truth of the matter is that Israel is now in what we believe is a fourth wave of the coronavirus. And so no ticker tape parades, but they did receive uh, heroes' welcomes at Ben Gurion Airport, and I'm sure that there will be plenty of opportunities to celebrate both Linoy Astram and Artem Dolgopiat, who is the other athlete who won gold, and I'm sure there'll be other opportunities for that as well. You mentioned Linoy. She was absolutely stunning. Her floor routine was breathtaking. And I have to say, I kind of found it annoying to wake up every morning and see a headline that Simone Biles would not compete that day. I really wanted to say, what part of I'm out did you not understand, people? <laughs> and then she goes and owns the balance beam and wins bronze, of course. But I really thought we needed to respect and honor Simone's decision and also recognize that there were other really talented gymnasts to watch. And Lenoy was one of them. She was. She was. We, we should all be so lucky to win bronze medals when we're not competing in the Olympics. Right, exactly. As someone who has just recently embraced kayaking, I can confirm it is a feat of strength what Jessica Fox of Australia, another Jewish Olympian, did, winning a bronze and gold in the canoe and kayak events. I didn't even know those existed in the Olympics until this year. And it runs in the family, apparently. Her mother, and who was also her coach, also won bronze back in the day. Truly remarkable. And then, of course, there was the Israeli baseball team, who didn't win any medals, but entertained and endeared themselves to all of us who were watching. Would it be rude to call them my new lovable losers now that the <laughs> Chicago Cubs have renounced that title? Not at all. I'm sure they'd embrace that. But I want to go back to that clip in Airplane. Why does everyone get that joke? Why are there supposedly so very few Jewish sports legends? Well, Look, the Jews have long been known as people of the book, which, by the way, is not a moniker that we bestowed upon ourselves. It's actually something that comes from the Jewish presence in Muslim lands, where both Jews and Christians were referred to as peoples of the book. But sporting was never our strong suit in many respects. And there are, in fact, competing views, even in the Bible, about the role of physicality and how much that should be emphasized in a person's life. On the one hand, there are quotes like the verse from Zechariah, not by strength and not by force, but rather by my spirit, says the Lord God. And then, of course, there are other quotes like, you should guard your body, your life zealously. And that, I think, is, those are two very different views of the role of the body versus the role of the spirit. And so I think Jews have long had 
a nuanced perspective on this. And I'd like to say that we can actually have it all because on the one hand, we now have 13 medals, 13 Olympic medals since Israel first joined the Olympics in 1952. But we also have 12 Nobel Prizes for the state of Israel, which I think is a remarkable achievement. And hopefully we will continue growing in both areas, both the spirit and the body, in order to bring pride and joy to Israelis and Jews around the world. Well, Avi, I've always said we can have it all, just not all at once. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.